Sheen, of yeah. course, is very much sort of like an offspring of Leo the Thirteenth's yes. uh, theological emphasis on Thomism and on social teaching. So in 1940, when he writes Freedom Under God, it presents a moral vision for the country. Okay. And then you see Communism and Conscience in the West and mm-hmm. Peace of Soul. These are the big impact books. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Dauphiné. And today, I'm joined by our colleague in the Department of Politics, James Patterson. Thank you so much for having me. This is exciting. I'm not a theologian, but I talk about some theology, so hopefully it'll be of uh, great relevance to your your show. Well, we're really looking forward to it. And uh, today, we're going to talk about uh, the really kind of, I think, great and sometimes forgotten uh, Archbishop Fulton Sheen. That's right. And uh, you've done a lot of work on him as a scholar. Uh, and uh, maybe just for fun as well. And so uh, we'd love just to get to learn from you about Fulton Sheen today. Uh, and maybe just as a starting question, right? Why why is it worth remembering Fulton Sheen today in 2022? So, you know, if people remember uh, Sheen, it's because they remember his television show, Life is Worth Living, ran from 19, uh, I want to say 51 to 57, uh, won an Emmy and and. Uh, his old joke about this was, I would like to thank my writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I mean, the guy was a showman, had a real presentation, um, has a real Shakespearean flair that makes mm-hmm. him um, instantaneously recognizable in addition to the vestments that he wore so to sort of confirm his, his stature as a bishop. Uh, but by the time he's on television, he's actually had a career as both a priest and a theologian for... Um, like 30 years. And this is forgotten yeah. stuff that he had a radio show called The Catholic Hour that he helped uh, host. But uh, at the same time he was doing the radio show, he was publishing uh, both popular and academic writings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are the things that I often think are overlooked. And that's kind of unfortunate because even at the time, they knew him from the show of the 1950s because they already knew him from the radio and mm-hmm. publications. He had a bestseller called Peace of Soul and another one called uh, Communism and the Conscience of the West, which mm-hmm. is about as provocative as it sounds. <laughs> yeah. uh, so a lot of what he says during this period leading up to life is worth living uh, is not merely reflective of the, bo- the moment, but are meant to be sort of contemplations that, uh, that resonate today, including his philosophy of science, which is extremely applicable to today. Wow. Um, no, it's really fascinating. And it's, it's kind of hard to... Uh, maybe what I, what I hear you describing is that we have somebody here who's earning, winning Emmys yeah. on TV for a TV show. He's right. been doing radio shows for 20 years, uh, was also kind of a theologian of the highest caliber, Right. Um, also a public intellectual really tackling intellectually the crises of the day. He was also a master converter. He's on the to- cover of Time Magazine in 1940 as the man who's converting the elite, like Claire Booth Luce was someone that he brought into the church. And uh, so, I mean, the man was just, he was unconquerable for, for a time in there until after the show's over and then starts to, you know, get a little older and has a run-in with uh, Cardinal Spellman. And we don't want to dwell with that on, but, yeah. uh, you know. Yeah, yeah so um, maybe, I, I know you're working on a book, is that correct? That's right. And, and what is that book focusing on? 
So there's been a recent uh, resurgence in the publication of Sheen's work. I know Tan Press has uh, some books that have come out because they've fallen into public domain, so they mm-hmm. can be reissued. Uh, one book that actually uh, went into public domain early was um, an actually really great book called Freedom Under God. Hmm. Uh, the, the press went kaput, and then uh, uh, nobody bought the press, so it just fell into public domain, so you can get that okay. for cheap online. Um, but my book is going to be more uh, of a compilation of some of those uh, sections of those works, as well as harder to find materials that Sheen published, say, in America Magazine uh, or the Irish Times. Uh, and the idea would be to sort of look at these during the period when he's more uh, engaged in formal theology and sort of dwell on his ideas of the church, um, politics, and and morality. And the reason why this matters is that Sheen's writing during a period when the church is actually experiencing a lot of internal disagreement about these things, the early 20th century. And he's kind of an odd duck because on the one hand, he's, you know, an American as American can be, he goes to St. Viator, goes to CUA, taught under Monsignor John Ryan, Monsignor New Deal, mm-hmm. you know, this very like progressive Catholic. But then he heads over to Louvain, uh, a Catholic University of Louvain, now it's on today, and he studies under all these neo-Thomists, and he knows Gary Lagrange. And so he kind of emerges this kind of a combination of influences that makes him, on the one hand, very orthodox, but on the other hand, very little R Republican. He's very uh, insistent on, on things like popular sovereignty in a way that you wouldn't necessarily expect from a Louvain-educated neo-Thomist. So um, these sorts of things are forgotten because often what Sheen's remembered for is more of his popular work, and that's, it's a shame to forget that. Uh, he was a serious thinker, too. Yeah. Um, he received a prestigious award uh, from Louvain, correct? <laughs> that's right. It's a great story. Uh, he got something called the, is it the Agrigé? I don't, I don't yes, speak. Okay. I, think so. I don't, I don't know how to speak. Uh, I, I learned German, unfortunately. You don't want to hear me try to say that in German. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, so the, when they're awarded, it's a, essentially like a super doctorate. Mm-hmm. And when they award it, they don't tell you how you did until you arrive at the evening. Uh, so if you've performed poorly, they serve as the beverage of choice, water. Uh, no one gets water. I think by the, if you're going to get water, they don't let you finish. Uh, it's, uh, if it's below average but acceptable, it's beer. And normally what you got was wine. That was a sign that you did fine. But special occasions, they serve champagne. And he says his biography, A Treasure in Clay, the champagne was particularly sweet that evening. He crushed yeah. it. And yes. because he crushed it, they actually offered him a position at Louvain, which he, was, which he turned down. Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize is that he didn't become a popular speaker or a popular theologian because he wasn't capable of being a first-class academic theologian. Uh, He really had that opportunity and just, I think, discerned, right? I mean, do you know, can you say anything more about that? What made him choose to, you know, go back and serve the church? So, um I believe, I forget who it was in the United States. It may have been Spellman by then, but I forget who it was. He has sort of had a, a person who was supervising his work as a, as a sponsor. Um, and there were two concerns about Sheen. One is they didn't want to waste one of the most promising American Catholic talents on Europe. Mm. So they want to bring him back. Mm-hmm. So maybe he wanted to uh, on some level. Uh, but uh, he knew that he, that was not going to be what's asked of him. So I think he went under there with that understanding the other is that the first thing they did with him afterwards is they sent him to some rural English parish, mm-hmm. essentially to like humble him. I mean, like while he was at Louvain, he's like he actually goes on and meets with Pius XI and the future Pius XII. I mean, mm-hmm. he's given this like papal treatment, 
And they're like, maybe we're kind of ruining this guy, right? We need to like send him to somewhere in the middle of nowhere in a non-Catholic country and really uh, get to him, right? And then he ends up making friends with G.K. Chesterton. So the guy finds a way. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. And, and then when he does come back to uh, the U.S., right, he gets uh, uh, eventually, he teaches for a while and then uh, becomes yeah, at, a- At CUA. At CUA, maybe for like a decade. Mm-hmm. And then ends up uh, going to New York. Yeah. Right. To uh, really begin the radio show and begin some of the continuing to teach and continuing to do. That's uh, right. Evangelization. So the National Council of Catholic Men invite him to to start with the radio show called the Catholic Hour. Mm-hmm. It's not just him. They have other people come on, uh, but he's easily the, mo- the standout star. Uh, and uh, the reason they do this is because in 1928, the first Catholic runs for president, Al Smith for the Democrats. On top of being Catholic, he's a wet so he wants to rescind uh, prohibition, which makes him like most of the rest of the country. But, you know, like uh, uh-huh. no one's allowed to say that. Uh, and so he runs and it's vehemently anti-Catholic, mm-hmm. uh, the campaign against him. It's done by the Republican Party. The Republicans of the early 20th century were largely Protestant, in many cases, very animated by a sectarian spirit against the still sort of like resonant both Catholic uh, Protestant division, but also sort of ethnic division, sort of the Anglo-Protestant establishment, as it used to be called, versus the Italian, Irish, Polish uh, immigrants. And so he's brought on essentially to defend Catholicism as it's practiced in America mm-hmm. against the idea that um, they would not be loyal Americans. So the prevailing idea was that Catholics were going to be ultimately loyal to the Pope. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sheen says that to be loyal to the Pope is to be loyal to the country and and uh-huh. so he's nominally teaching at CUA up until 1951, but it's on a very reduced load. And he's constantly being shuffled around um, in different departments as CUA tries to figure out how to balance their faculty on how they're going to teach. So mm-hmm. uh, he does have a lot of students uh, that came out of uh, the program uh, learning from him. But by the time the, the 30s and 40s have rolled around, really his his classroom is America. That's amazing. Uh, and it's what would you say maybe are some of the connections between some of the work he did in his doctoral studies yeah. and his academic work and his writing, his intellectual writing, and his later um, popular his later yeah. popular appeal and uh, navigating some of these very complex political and you know dealing with the you know the rise of you know communism, uh, so many other different elements. So uh, you've asked me to tell you what the introduction to the compilation of the book is. So oh, good. you're good at this. Uh, so, <laughs> so, but no, the so the early part of Sheen's work is concerned about the relationship between um, reason and and revelation, which is a small topic, right? Now yeah. this is definitely a theology uh, topic, but in particular, the way he understands it are two problems that are important. One is the um, scientific reason as a uh, uh, very divided from theological reason, uh, which he regards as um, as incomprehensible. Right, scientific reason detached from the rest of revelation uh, and our moral understanding of the universe um, uh, cannot be understood on its own terms. Okay, so yeah. what I hear you saying is that uh, in his early studies, yeah. he sees this kind of rise of and dominance of scientific technological yes. reasoning. Um, maybe, you know, what we can see and touch and manipulate right. and discover about the kind of physical world. Uh, and we are completely enthralled with yes. scientific reason. But we see that as somehow uh, separate from 
moral reasoning, the the kind of moral foundations of the universe. Yes. And also from the uh, higher level of the theological meaning of the universe. That's exactly right. And the reason it's incomprehensible is that scientific reason cannot account for itself. Uh, and so this is yeah. in a book called Philosophy of Science. I'm actually starting towards the that's his third book. Okay. Uh, I should have started with his first, which is actually the philosophical foundations for that scientific approach. Mm-hmm. And that's called God and Intelligence. That's what gets him the champagne in Louvain. Wow. And its introduction is written by Chesterton. Okay. Yeah. So, like, he's, you know. So, God and Intelligence, uh, is that something, what, would, what does God and Intelligence have to do with science? That's a great, it's a great question, and it's sort of a prelude to a second book called uh, Religion Without God, and the idea is um, that there are these pragmatic thinkers, pragmatism is a school, not like they're thinking practically, mm-hmm. but pragmatism is a school of philosophy in which what's true is what works. Okay. And, the, and so the idea of any kind of revealed um, scripture, the idea of God, is really subject to this criteria of does it work? And you can imagine for many pragmatists, either implicitly or explicitly, the answer is no. And, okay, and Sheen, yeah. like, essentially has a great deal of fun with this uh, mm-hmm. philosophy because it's not very good. Uh, and so he just makes hay of it. Uh, just okay. really just, um, and this is why Chesterton writes the introduction, because he's equally concerned about this attempt to essentially relegate God to a parenthesis. Um, wow. And then in religion without God, you get the concepts of religion by the pragmatists that are essentially trying to reincorporate the divine, but in service to some kind of uh-huh. scientific technological enterprise. So what Sheen wants to say is really maybe there are three modes of, there are three levels of human thinking. First is the scientific. Right. Second is the moral. Right. Kind of this, you know, what's a human being? Yes. Uh, and what are my duties to another human being? And then thirdly, What's the theological, right? Yes. What's, what's God's purpose and meaning? And, and, and what he wants to do is to say that the irony is that unless there's some larger principle of the universe, mm-hmm. right, then there are, no, um, there are no supports. Is that what he's saying? There are no supports for scientific reasoning? So scientific <laughs> reasoning itself will fall apart? That's right. So uh, scientific reasoning is, has this idea of what works, uh, and and so his question is both how do we know what works and how do we know that's the the right standard mm. and it's how many experiments are you going to run mm-hmm. the answer is uh, there are none experiments that can do that for you that can get you to that uh, so uh-huh. in order to account for this they have to engage in a philosophical enterprise that presumes certain moral standards and he said yeah. like, well where did these come from well, these have an account uh-huh. right. And, and so this is where you really see that Louvain neo-Thomism yeah. uh, just grab this and, and uh, humiliate it. Because in many cases, these pragmatic philosophers are not really writing in the spirit of seeking the truth. They're really writing in a way to facilitate changes that are already underway. Mm-hmm. Do and, you see any connection between what was going on uh, in the, say, teens and 20s, the early 1900s that Sheen is responding to and some of the, maybe the new atheists that have been somewhat uh, getting attention over the last 30 years? Yes. Uh, in fact, like Sheen is the one who's confronting the old atheists. Okay. Uh, and that's what religion without God is about. Mm-hmm. Um, where uh, he's, uh, you know, the, the old uh, substitutions for God are the people, mm-hmm. right? The people, you know, uh, have, often have poor moral judgment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and are, so how do we know that it's a poor moral judgment where we have these intuitions and where do they come from? Mm -hmm. Um, Partly through formation, partly because we have this innate capacity for moral reasoning. 
uh, others would be like what uh, scientific experts have in mind. Mm-hmm. And he's well, really these people, this is conventional thinking that's often sort of un, unexamined. Uh, yeah. And all of this is a way of reintroducing the role of revelation, but also just of proper, uh, proper old fashioned uh, philosophy that is the pursuit of truth regardless of circumstance. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, in his view, will naturally lead you to a position that the Catholic Church occupies. But sure. um, so, kind of this idea that the we can do science, yes, because the world is intelligible, right, and we have the intelligent capacity to come to understand the intelligibility of the world, right. And then the question is, where does that intelligibility come from? Well, it comes from a source of the world and of us. That is the creator. That's right. Uh, we could reason to that with uh, just philo- philosophically. Precisely. Um, but we come to know it more perfectly when that creator comes to know us first in Israel and then in Jesus Christ. We are rational. Creation is rational okay. because God imbued in us both that kind of rationality. Yeah. And the most important thing is upon learning what we know scientifically mm-hmm. through that uh, application of that reason, we then subject those findings to the moral law. And that's mm-hmm. where it really mm-hmm. starts to come home. And that is what I think he yeah. uh, it posits is the cause for people to avoid the, the, the position on God altogether. They don't want to be so limited. Mm. How does that have to, how would you say that connects to the later um, his engagement with, you said one of his uh, books soon afterwards was Communism and the, and the Conscience of the West. Of the West. Yeah. So how is this treatment of science and goodness of science, but also the limits needing to be within a moral and theological framework, what does that have to do with his treatment of communism? So communism, we tend to forget, broadcast itself in the early 20th century as scientific. So, okay. yeah, it was it had its own economic laws. Mm-hmm. The process of unfolding economic development entailed understanding those laws. Uh, and so the idea behind a scientific revolution was uh, uh, was both part of the early bourgeois revolution of the 19th century, but also in the communist revolution that starts mm-hmm. in the Soviet Union. And so the first thing he wants to do is he wants to describe how the scientific basis for communism is of the same variety as these other versions of science, which is without any kind of appeal to the moral Mm -hmm. law. And so the consequence that you get uh, is that uh, communism is not just amoral, right? It's not not really skeptical of a particular moral law. It's anti-moral. It actually propagates... Uh, anti-religion, and does so by what he uh, calls a hideous simulacrum of Christianity, where Mm. it sort of almost almost intentionally develops a kind of anti-Christ persona, where Mm. uh, he says rather than um, the the eternal uh, body and uh, blood of Christ present in the Eucharist, they have uh, linen stuffed with paraffin and wax uh, in the, the red square, so it's the closest they can get. Uh, and so this is why everything's permitted by the party, uh, that if communists um, have no moral law, but, uh, but what scientific findings they have that lead to their justification for rule, then they can liquidate people, they can assassinate people, they can, they can make agreements with Nazis and then break those agreements with now Nazis. Now in the 30s, when he's writing this, correct? Yes. Uh, this would have been a minority opinion very, in the U.S., correct? He very publicly, like at one point during Life is Worth Living, he kind of lets off a little steam, and he said something about Stalin. He said, they would not let me say this during the war. 
So, wow. yeah, and it's because um, he was very critical of, of FDR striking a formal alliance with the Soviet Union. He thought the United States was not capable of having such an alliance because the Soviets would never honor it. And they didn't. Well, uh, let's take a break, <laughs> and uh, we'll come back after our break. You're listening to The Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. If you'd like to support our mission, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining our Annunciation Circle, a monthly giving program aimed at supporting our staff, faculty, and Catholic faith formation. You can visit us at avemaria.edu to learn more. Thank you for your continued support, and now let's get back to the show. Dr. Patterson, Tell us a little bit about how you got interested in Fulton Sheen. So I went to graduate school at the University of Virginia, Mm -hmm. uh, and I wanted to write on religious foundations uh, for public policy. Uh, I had a professor there who was helping me with my uh, doctoral studies, Mm -hmm. James W. Caesar, and he had written on this subject too, but he had written on appeals to history and appeals to nature and mentioned religious foundations, but didn't talk about it too much. And I sort of raised my hand Uh that I would do it. And I decided to narrow it to the 20th century because it's actually like a centuries-long question in American history. Mm -hmm. So I decided to focus on the 20th century mainly because it's the easiest to to resource and nobody else had written on it. So I I would stake the easier claim. Always smart. So I talked about Jerry Falwell and Martin Luther King, and I was going to talk about um, John Courtney Murray. And Uh I say this to my mother. Uh, uh, my mother, Donna Patterson, uh, was partly converted by Fulton Sheen by watching the program. And she said, nobody knew who Murray was. Mm -hmm. Uh, She said, you know, that was just for philosophers and for theologians. The Mm -hmm. person that everybody knew about, like King and Falwell, was Fulton Sheen. Like, Fulton Sheen, who's this? And so I I find that he's, like, had multiple episodes uploaded to YouTube, not just through EWTN, but all these sort of random um, Catholic users on YouTube. Okay. I cannot believe I hadn't heard of him. Mm-hmm. And so there are two really excellent works on this, America's Bishop uh, and Fulton J. Sheen, uh, A Catholic Response to 20th Century. So I look those up, I read them, and I say, here, I, we have it. This is it. My mother was right. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. It's awesome. So what, were, what, what struck you when you were beginning? So in a way, maybe um, you went through the same kind of discovery that perhaps some of your readers or maybe listeners today or students today yes. will go through. They may have not heard much about Fulton Sheen uh, and then all of a sudden discover that he was really one, kind of one of the giants of 20th century American Catholicism. What what were some of the things that when you began to see and after you discovered that he was uh, famous and well-known, yeah. what were the kind of, what were some of the substantive points that made you think, wow, uh, this man's not only famous, but he has depth. So the 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 book that uh, is most obviously appealing mm-hmm. to me when reading this, as, as since I do political science, was uh, that book I mentioned before, "Freedom Under God." Okay, uh, which is his attempt to implement. This is it's published in 1940. It's meant to implement the Leonine social teachings in a way that was compatible. You, what did you say? Oh, I'm sorry, Leonine. Is that my pronunciation? Leon, this no, it just. Do you mean you're so you're Leo saying the Thirteenth, following Leo the Thirteenth? Yeah who was a pope at the end of the uh, 19th century yes. and around to around 1900 and wrote a lot of really, in some ways is credited with kind of starting the tradition of Catholic social teaching and yes. trying to help 
draw from the church's teaching and from St. Thomas issues that would help us address the political and economic crises of the day. And Sheen, of yeah. course, is very much um, a, a sort of like an offspring of of Leo the Thirteenth's yes. uh, theological emphasis on Thomism and on social teaching because mm-hmm. he does both. Uh, wow. And and he's yeah. born in 1895, you know, right in the mm-hmm. middle of all this. So uh, he's very much like caught into that sort of way of thinking. Mm-hmm. So in 1940, when he writes it, uh, this book, uh, it presents a moral vision for the country that allows for the kind of pluralism that would be necessary for a country that is as religiously diverse as this, mm-hmm. but still rooted in the teachings of the church rather than some sort of amorphous liberalism or what have you. So, uh, but that's where I started. Okay. And then you see Communism and Conscience in the West and mm-hmm. Peace of Soul. These are the big impact books uh, that he had. And as you start to move backwards, you start to see um, how this long popularization of Catholic social teaching uh, was not a project of a person who, as you said, maybe didn't quite cut it. Yeah. But rather, in order for him to do this required him to have that kind of high-level Thomism mm-hmm. so that it's almost like he sees like the uh, the beatific vision has to descend <laughs> like from Mount Sinai and, yeah. and, and give the law to the people who have everyday lives. Uh, and so the popularization work that he goes into is largely informed by this very rigorous work that he has before uh, and so the way that um, you you see him operating is very much in the same sort of categories as people like King and Falwell, who are very different, very different trainings, uh, but also had to do the same thing. Like King had to go to get his PhD at Boston mm-hmm. University. Only then does he is he able to minister very directly on issues of racial justice. And Falwell sort of uh, goes through his own version of this as a Baptist uh, uh-huh. uh, in order for him to become a popular speaker. Yeah. But, you know, every time you write a book like this, there there's the case you really want to talk about. And uh, it was Shane. You know, you can wow. tell from the way the Shane chapter is written in the books. Like, this is... That's what you I'm, fell in love with? I dwell a little mm. bit on Shane. Although the other two yeah. chapters are also excellent, so... Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, you know, one... One interesting thing there is I think we, and maybe this is partly just, you know, the shift from the 20th century to the 21st century in the United States. Uh, It's hard for us to imagine today how significant religious formation and religious ideas were to the political discourse of the 20th century. Yeah, and newspapers, they used to publish full sermons mm-hmm. and the religious pages uh, and Sheen's would be among and them. And these were not religious newspapers. No, no, no. Right? These the New just, York Times, yeah. the Washington Post, they had like a religious, like this giant, like they yeah. have like a prominent rabbis, a mm-hmm. whole sermon would sometimes be placed in there. They would report on what they had to say, even if they didn't print the whole thing. So not mm-hmm. everybody got that treatment. Um, and it was news, mm-hmm. like which, ch- uh, what, whether a church took a position on a particular uh-huh. issue at that time. Mm-hmm. So it was very significant, and it was high stakes. Yeah, you know, like this is a period when there's still some semblance of of religious violence that yeah. can occur. And I think there was, you might be able to correct me, but I believe it was in 1942 the Christmas address by FDR uh, during we've been in the war for a year. Yeah, um, probably the nadir of the war. Not a um, good time. I mean, the you know Europe has been at war for three years by this point, and um, it hadn't gotten any better for us getting involved. No. Uh, but he, I believe he said in his Christmas address that year in 42 that basically, what are we fighting for? And he said, we're fighting for our religion. 
Yes. Right. We're fighting for our religion against the forces of barbarism. And yeah. so it was kind of understood that, say, there wasn't one religion that dominated yes. the um, you know, the, the, the West or the U.S., but there was kind of a conglomeration of religious viewpoints that somehow spoke to, right, yes. uh, the ultimate, right, the dignity of the human person, the obligations of the human person, yes, uh, you know, the notion of sacrifice, all this different idea. But this was broadly something like, at that time, right, a Judeo-Christian. That's exactly uh, right, that view, phrase. Viewpoint. So uh, I always like to joke, I actually have a, a uh, talk that I give called The Rise and Fall of the Judeo-Christian Consensus. But the joke is that yeah. uh, w- why on earth did this ever happen? These, uh, you know, Protestants, Catholics, and Jews aren't really well known for getting along with each other. Mm-hmm. And it is precisely, as you say, a result of this kind of experience and fighting in the trenches together. Mm-hmm. And there was a pointed effort in film during this period mm-hmm. to to depict, like, Jews, Protestants, and Catholics serving together in the trenches. Mm-hmm. So um, Sheen is... Um, emphatically in favor of this approach of there being some kind of civil peace among religious denominations. This isn't, doesn't mean he's indifferentist, mm-hmm. right? He still affirms very much the, the truth of the Catholic church uh, um, and does so wherever possible and whenever possible. But that doesn't necessitate some kind of like uh, fomenting of division. Mm-hmm. And you know, maybe there's, yeah. if you think about one of the things that say, atomism is known for is that faith and reason do not contradict one another. Exactly. Grace does not destroy, but perfects nature. So if faith and reason go together, then also it's not surprising that he would hold ultimately the fullness of truth in the Catholic church while also really affirming uh, the truth within Protestant communions or truths within other communions, because it's just like faith and reason. Faith is higher and is the fuller vision, but it doesn't contradict reason. So also the fullness of the faith does not, uh, you know, goes above. That's right. Um, but somehow can find points of contact. It reminds me, I think he did a Christmas homily uh, that's been reprinted. And he said that, uh, I think he said that basically all human religions and human philosophies are fundamentally man's search for God. Yes. And what makes the Judeo-Christian different is that it's God's search for man. Yes. Right. And so on the one hand there, he's in right in in one image, he's showing like the radical uniqueness of the Judeo-Christian vision, the certain sense of God's search for man and ultimately God becoming man right in a crib in right. Bethlehem. But on the other hand, he's also affirming in a way something like lots of truths and insights that you're going to find amongst religions and philosophies, because those are man's search for God. So by setting it up that way, I think he's able to have kind of a complementary vision that allows him to kind of build genuine consensuses. You have it exactly. Yeah. Uh, there's a the line that they'd like to use on EWTM when they would show it mm-hmm. is from Communism and the Conscience of the West, where he says, um, it's not the unity of religion that we plead for, but the unity of uh, of the sort of the human response after this particular line. Wow. And they say, it, uh, it's not that we uh, can meet in the same pews. Would to God that we could, right? So he's he's not yeah. giving up mm-hmm. on the project. I mean, mm-hmm. he's, he converts all of these people to Catholicism, including Fritz Kreisler, who does like the opening music to uh, um, uh, to Life is Worth Living. He said, it's not the un- uh, unity of religion, and it's not that we all meet at, uh, in the same church, although he wishes that we could, but that at least we meet on our knees. Mm-hmm. That our first and foremost 
uh, allegiance is to God mm-hmm. and his rule for us. Uh, and uh, Judeo-Christianity as, uh, as a set of traditions unique to the United States and its, and its ability to form an alliance against this common threat mm-hmm. um, uh, provides that basis. And it's amazing because this concept of Judeo-Christianity is sort of passed to different religious leaders. This is sort of the, the book that I wrote um, in 2019. Uh, and uh, the original idea of a Judeo-Christian consensus is this mainline Protestant attempt to reconcile with Jews and Catholics, mm-hmm. and then they never lead it. right? They, mm-hmm. a, a bishop from the Catholic Church leads it, a black Baptist minister, mm-hmm. and then a fundamentalist who they had just re- like was the whole reason they started this project, this Judeo-Christian project, mm-hmm. uh, is a person um, who tries to use it. And there are also lots of other people like Billy Graham and, okay. and the like who all invoke this position, and it helps really um, alleviate a lot of the religious tensions that have been a big part of the 19th century. I mean, the convent burnings yeah. in 1837, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it was bad. Yeah. And even the, right, the the... Um, the presidential, the presidential, yeah. uh, 1928 with Al Smith that you were yeah. talking about. So, no, it's really uh, fascinating there. You know, yeah, just shifting gears a little bit. How how do you think Fulton Sheen um, like understood and attempted to express the gospel, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. So uh, Sheen had uh, two approaches. Uh, the first would be the Thomist approach. Which is analytical. So mm-hmm. he would he would introduce the gospel primarily as a set of propositions. Um, but right, uh, it's one of those mistakes. We don't want to confuse the gospel with Thomism. Right, Thomism is just a system for understanding. So the other thing he did was as relational, uh, and you can see this in the way that he structured his his homilies and his more public uh, addresses, in which he always opens with a story. Right, like yes. the preferred method for teaching mm-hmm. of our blessed Lord Jesus, right? Uh, as he starts with um, uh, uh, something that establishes relationships of, among people with God, and so then he he situates the more analytical frame mm-hmm. of Thomism uh, in this relational story that gives like a kind of animation, this this living and breathing nature of the gospel that at the same time is not purely emotive. Right, he's not. Mm-hmm. He's often thought to be because he's got the blackboard. He talks uh, about his yeah. angels. He has this Shakespearean mm-hmm. flourish to him. But if you mm-hmm. pay attention to what's on the blackboard, it's often things like nous, and you're like, "What is this doing on a blackboard yeah. in 1950?" You know, and, and one of the things that Thomas would always teach is that we, because we're bodily intelligences, yeah, uh, we can only encounter truths with images. Yes. He calls them phantasms. But fundamentally, we have to have <laughs> truths and images go together. So I can't think of a triangle without having an image of a triangle. Exactly. Um, and I think one of the things that maybe because of the particular world in which he was living, in which there were many, I mean, huge confusions about what the faith was. Yes. Right, in the uh, 11th and 12th and 13th centuries. Um, but there was also a, a certain kind of consistency, I think, that... I guess what I'm what I'm trying to suggest is that he would actually, I think, really welcome the idea that we need not only images like triangles or images of truths, but we need images of stories. Yes. Because we yes. can't understand the image of God's love, right, without the story of the prodigal son and the father reach run, you know, coming to see him. Right? Yeah. So so I do think there's a there's a real uh, synthesis there, but I think you're right. It can also people can think that stories are what we do when we shut off our reason. 
Yes. And I think for Fulton Sheen, it's the opposite. It's that there's nothing more rational than listening to a story and using the story to discover certain truths about ourselves and about God that otherwise we cannot see. Yeah, he incarnates this way of thinking about a theology, this sort of analytical frame, and precisely the model that that our blessed Lord has in, in the parables. And he does so yeah. very consciously mm-hmm. uh, because he knows that a lot of people aren't graduates of the Agrochet in yeah. Louvain. You know, yeah. you can't yeah. merely start any, to propose. Can you think of a st- story that... Uh, I can know, think that, of two. Okay, uh, the first is uh, a very famous story, mm-hmm. and it wasn't he wasn't the only one to tell it, obviously, mm-hmm. since um, it, he gets it from a newspaper from England where uh, G.K. Chesterton's asked if he was stuck on a desert island, what book would he, uh, would he wish he have? Mm-hmm. And everyone assumes, since he's this very famous apologist for the Catholic Church, he would say the Bible, and it's Thomas's guide to, practical guide to shipbuilding. And the idea is that, you know, yeah. you, you did. Ah. <laughs> so the reason why he says this is that, like, uh, he's, you know, uh, there are, there are, there are pious answers, right? Mm-hmm. But also, also, not always every answer needs to be so ob- objectively pious. Mm-hmm. Rather, the piety is based around the solution that will actually alleviate the problem. Wow! So it's this yeah, great, yeah. It, it's this great line, and yeah. he uses that story a lot. Uh, he likes yes. that yeah, story. We can build ships for the glory of God. That's right, right? Yes. Not every and, and mm-hmm. he and it immediately yeah. takes us to Martha and Mary, and it's it's fantastic. Yeah. Okay. And the other one is ba- it, it makes it makes more sense if you know who his sponsor was on Life Is Worth Living it was Admiral Refrigerators. Uh, okay. Now I I don't know if they're still uh, I doubt they are. Um, refrigerators are good things though. Oh yes, objectively good. Uh, so the the funny thing about the uh, the Admiral Refrigerator thing is they would give this long ad for Admiral Refrigerator so there would not be any more commercials. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, when he would come on, uh, a child uh, apparently said to his mother, "Here comes Admiral Sheen." Uh, and the idea was that uh, that sometimes we need to work for money. Uh, and that this is okay. And this was actually, I believe, yeah. the opening to one where he asks, are, is capital or labor always right? So, uh-huh. you know, again, a lot of people think of Sheen as this kind of like uh, televangelist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but imagine watching a show titled that <laughs> today. I mean, it would be very, very divisive. Yeah. But mm-hmm. uh, he decides to take the issue on uh, directly. And the answer is that neither is always okay. right. Yeah. Which uh, what are some books for people that are interested in learning more about Sheen, or maybe reading something that By Sheen him, wrote? Yeah. Which books would you suggest? So uh, I would never discourage people from reading Sheen's uh, the 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 many many compilations of Sheen's spiritual writing. Okay, uh, it's just that there's a lot of them, and you know, just whatever's at the mm-hmm. top of the Amazon uh, uh, or whatever, uh, I'm sure that'll be fine. Mm-hmm. But it, sometimes it's not always the uh, the best option. If you want to know a little bit more about his unvarnished Catholic social teaching. Uh, freedom under God is good. There's also an earlier version of that uh, called um, Justice and Charity, okay. which was recently published by a Chesterton Press, um, maybe like an affiliate of Tan or something, I forget. Um, so Communism and Conscience in the West is one that I would avoid uh, until you're like really into Sheen, because there's entire chapters that are just about uh, high and mid-level Soviet officers, and okay. during it's it's <laughs> it's kind of a uh, really dealing with a lot of the issues of his yes. day very specifically. Um, I remember I was actually, I think my my grandmother who was a French Canadian Catholic, right, um, and I was going through her library, and I remember getting a copy of her 
uh, Fulton Sheen's Life of Christ. Mm. And I had, uh, yeah, I think it was, um, you know, uh, Bernadette Casabon Dauphiné. Um, and, uh, but I remember, like, I think his Life of Christ would seem, I think partly what he did was really introduce people to Jesus Christ. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that sometimes is, I don't know, I almost is like forgotten. I World's think when, Greatest Love, his book on Mary. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Three yeah. to Get Married, I think, is another one about, right, getting married mm-hmm. with God. Those mysterious Why, why God matters. Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah. uh, uh, these are, and uh, you can find for 99 cents, uh, <laughs> you can find some of the edited uh, transcripts from Life is Worth Living. Um, mm-hmm. As a person who has to work in archives, yeah. Uh, the change of title in the middle is extremely frustrating. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, are, are yeah. the life and worth living that? So that's the show, the TV show he did yeah. from fifty-one to fifty-eight or so that won, yeah. I think, an Emmy or two. So are those available on YouTube? Sometimes? You can find them, yes. Okay. Uh, and I, there's no better thing to watch on July fourth than his glory of being American. Oh wow! Uh, which uh, you know he, uh, uh, you know d- d- that initial project from the 1930s of mm-hmm. counting for a form of Catholic patriotism uh, is on full display. Okay. Uh, but this, the divine sense of humor mm. uh, is 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 excellent, and he has one on um, broad mindedness that you can mm-hmm. find uh, everywhere. And he said, you know, you're, you become so broad broad minded, your brain falls out. Right? These old like <laughs> sheen uh, little nuggets okay. uh, that are a great fun. Well, that's great. Well, uh, before we close, I'd like to ask you three questions. Oh, so um, just kind of quick questions. You can answer them quickly. Oh, okay. Um, what are what are some things you do? on one or two things maybe you do on a daily basis, right, that help you find meaning and purpose in your life? Oh, my gosh. Uh, So um, this is going to sound strange, uh, but I use a social media site called Twitter, which uh, is not probably where you expected me to take this. uh, But there is um, a a coterie of people, not all of them Catholic, but Mm -hmm. many of them Catholic, uh, who who will ask for prayers, Hmm. Uh, there it's, and they maybe don't have a lot of friends or family in their lives. They don't know who to ask. And so they just essentially cast it out to social media. Hmm. Uh, and so I often spend time finding these people and praying, um, uh, for them. There's a particular account that does the same thing. So I sort of follow them, uh, and, uh, often just very short prayers because mm-hmm. you want to get through and pray for as many people as possible. Wow. That's beautiful. Uh, second question, what's a book you're reading? So right now I'm reading uh, John Wilsey's The Life of um, Dulles, John Dulles. I'm doing this because he's a friend, but also because um, another one of these mid-century figures who's often forgotten but had a very dramatic impact, and that's in William Erdman's press. Was John Dulles, was that a Catholic who became a senator? That's Avery Dulles. Uh, Avery became the cardinal. Dulles stayed a Protestant. He's a Protestant, but he became a senator, right? Uh, he he became secretary. Did he become okay. a senator? No, I haven't okay. gotten. I've just no, started. Right. Uh, I've gotten through but the Dulles. He's the one for whom the airport gets named. That's right. right. Not right. Avery Dulles. Yeah. They're yeah. not naming. Yeah. They're not naming yeah. the airport after yeah. a cardinal. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. This is America. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, uh, last question. You know, uh, this is a theology show, so we want to try to ideas about God matter. Yes, that's partly what we're uh, trying to investigate. So, what's a false belief that you held about God that maybe you know? hurt you at some point, and what's the truth you discovered? So uh, growing up, as I did, I grew up in Houston, Texas, Mm -hmm. and um, I'm 42. Mm -hmm. Um, So that puts me 1980, moved to Texas in uh, 82. That puts me right in the middle of the sort of 
almost like a third great, great awakening among sort of Baptists, evangelical Protestants, and Houston was very much on fire with that. So I come from a Catholic home. Um, both my parents are converts, uh, but I'm cradle. Mm-hmm. And being in that milieu meant that no real emphasis was on Mary. Um, mm-hmm. And so I grew up with converts who didn't have a Marian devotion because mm-hmm. that was not what they were raised with, and surrounded by people who actively opposed any sort of Marian devotion. Uh, and so I didn't have much of uh, a veneration of the, the holiness of our Blessed Mother until really I came here. So Ave Maria, obviously, in the name, wow. uh, you better get one. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, uh, thank you so much, uh, James Patterson, for uh, being with us. And uh, when do you think that book will be coming out? Well, I've got to finish the proposal. I have to find one last thing, which okay. was Sheen's statement on the Vietnam War, okay. which we'll have to save for another episode, yeah. I guess. Uh, and then I'll be sending it off to press. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on the Catholic Theology Show.